Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. In this episode, I'm talking to Zeb Larson, a recent graduate of the PhD program at The Ohio State University, and a freelance writer. Here, Zeb and I will reminisce a bit about our days in grad school, but more importantly, we will talk about what it means to be a freelance writer, and we will discuss Zeb's advice for history students entering the job market. What is your name, and what do you do? My name is Zeb Larson, and I am a recent graduate of Ohio State University's PhD program, so I'm getting in the habit of no longer referring to myself as a student, which has been my identity for better and for worse for about the last 20 years. Now right. I'm, a, I'm a writer, I think is what I'm going with. I like to say I'm a writer. Awesome. And just as a disclaimer for if anyone cares, uh, Zeb and I knew each other from Ohio State. Uh, I graduated, I think, right before you did. But then I taught a class where you were a, um, a teaching assistant for it. So we've known each other for a while off and on. So, you know, that disclaimer out of the way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your uh, academic and professional background? So I was one of those kids who always knew we wanted to be a historian. That was just always what I wanted to do. It was what I set my sights on in high school, and I just tried to stick with it. And where I ended up in the profession sort of academically was I, I call myself a diplomatic historian, although really I, more like an international historian, I guess. I'm interested in what you know, the, the big buzzword in history these days is transnational history. So um, studying movements of people back and forth that go across borders, it, specifically my dissertation was on uh, the anti-apartheid movement in the United States. And I wrote that and defended it in March and looking to adapt it into a monograph. And currently I'm a lecturer at Ohio State. I'm going to be teaching a couple classes in the fall. After that, I don't know what comes next. Which classes are you teaching in the fall? One I've always wanted to teach. I'm actually really excited for this. And it's um, U.S. history, U.S. foreign policy since 1920. It's a 3,000 levels when you're a grad student. You can't teach them. So I've, I've always wanted to do this class. I'm really glad I'm finally at a point where I can do it. Mm-hmm. And then the other is U.S. history since 1877, which I've taught four times now, five times. I've kind of lost track, which yeah, I mean, right. I think I'll get to that point. Yeah. I, oh, my God. I can't even count how many times <laughs> yeah. I've taught that class over the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, but that's awesome, though. It, it was um, that was one of the exciting things about being a lecturer for OSU. Um, that Vietnam class is a class that I had been looking forward to for a long time that you and I worked on together. And then I also got to do a, um, a Gilded Age and Progressive Era in the U.S., which was really cool. And nice. I forget the other one was, oh, Colonial Latin America. So I was kind of all over the place. The the Latin America one, I wasn't quite as prepared for, and I think it showed, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. It was a, it was an interesting class to teach. There you go. Uh, it's, that's the exciting thing about graduation is getting to move to those those more advanced courses you, you've had in your head for about five years, but you never got to get close to. So, Yeah, the Vietnam one, I had been, you know, I had been – building in my head for a very long time. I think I even at one point even put together a bunch of PowerPoint slides for my, my U.S. history survey class, thinking that, oh, maybe I'll spend like a week or two on Vietnam so I can expand on it a bit. But, you know, that doesn't really work out all that well, especially back in those days that it was only a 10-week class and there was <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a treadmill. Yeah, you got to keep moving. 
Right, right. So uh, as you know, this podcast is all about helping history students find potential careers outside of traditional academia. And I know that you have, this has been an interest in to you for a while now. I know that you published an article in uh, Inside Higher Ed, which I'll post a link to in the uh, sh- the episode notes here when this goes live. But what is, wh- so what is your, what are your initial thoughts on career options for history students, either undergrad or graduate level? I'll freely admit I give, I've given more thought to the issue of graduate employment just because it directly affects me. I mean, there's some self-interest at work here. Sure, um, that's no problem. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you're not aware, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a problem with academic hiring. There aren't very many tenure-track jobs. So if you're strictly rational, you, you want to think about other things you can do with your degree beyond just teaching. It, it it pays to be sort of um, of a diverse skill set. The thing I keep coming back to, and this is partly why I call myself a writer, is that, and this is truly true at the undergraduate level too, history actually does a very good job of preparing you for a some kind of career in writing. Um, it's this, it, this is a writing-heavy skill set. It's, it's hard to get very far, even with a history major, if you can't put an argument together. And if nothing else, every history class I ever had, it, it always served to make me a clear writer. It wasn't necessarily that I had beautiful prose or was going to go on to write the great American novel. Who knows? Maybe I will. Maybe. But, you know, at, at the time, at least, when I went and even when I had to write marginally in non-academic jobs, I could still put together a report that anybody could understand. You know, I, I write something, I give it to my boss, and my boss can read it and go, okay, I understood what what's happening here, what's going on. That's, that's actually a pretty useful skill. Um, and I've been trying to put that to use. Um, I have been freelancing for a little while now. And as a freelancer, I mean, freelancing covers about as many different careers as you can gin up. I write specifically for education publishers, educational companies, lesson plans, textbook, assessment questions, I actually kind of love doing assessment questions, and I don't know what that says about me, but I'm really happy to write them. So, You're one of those people. All right. <laughs> yeah. There's something about, about crafting of the perfect question to a state standard. I don't know that it just sings to me. Um, <laughs> but what I discovered, and I, I this was a world I knew nothing about. I, I fell into it, honestly, kind of by accident. A company... Um, wrote to, as far as I can tell, they were just picking out people who had some kind of academic background in U.S. foreign relations and asked them to contribute essays for reference volumes, which I was very happy to do. And it was that was close to my skill set, so it didn't seem too scary to jump into. And I did that, and they were actually pretty happy with my work. They felt like I could turn it around quickly. I always hit my deadlines. I if nothing else, I turned around clean copy as they put, as somebody put it to me later, your work needed very little revision, which on our end, we really appreciated. So at the end of that project, I said, you know, Hey, I liked working with you guys. If there's ever something else in the future, um, feel free to reach out. And they did. And they just sort of kept doing it. And I sort of stuck with that because it was, I liked the money and the work was actually, more enjoyable than I might have thought it would have been at the beginning. It wasn't, it was, it was technical in its own way, but it was also, I mean, ultimately it's the subject I've been studying my whole life. And 
Yeah, I, I, I'd have to branch out in terms of age, you know, figuring out how to write for a fourth grader when you've been writing at like what you think is college level your whole life. You, there'll right. be some growing pains. There's still right. growing pains, but um, but you get into it and and sort of sink your teeth in pretty quickly. So you were saying that they were looking for diplomatic historians. Did they reach out to you individually or did they, was there just kind of a general call on a website that you found or how did you actually fall in with the, with that group? They emailed me. I still okay. don't know. I'm still not entirely clear how I was lucky enough to get this only because I have, I've had a stable relationship with these guys for a little while now and I'm not sure exactly what led them to me except that it happened. But then what I discovered after working with them for a little bit was that, okay, this is great, but the work is freelance. And as any freelancer will tell you, freelance income is feast or famine. Either you're swimming in work or you have none at all. And then I, then I started trying to think, okay, I, I, if I want to make a go at depending on this or even making it a bigger part of my sort of professional life, I need to start figuring out where the work is. Um, it can't just be this one company that's out here doing it. I, I have to figure out how to crack this, um, which is tricky. Um, it's networking is one of those skills I don't think historians are immediately taught. I mean, to the extent that they are, it's like, and this is useful. Don't get me wrong, but network with people in your field. You know, you should go out. If you're a diplomatic historian, you should network with other diplomatic historians. If you're a historian of France, you do the same thing. And that's good, but it doesn't necessarily sort of help lead you into other career paths unless by some chance an ex-historian has had a, a totally different career and have been a historian, which is uncommon as far as I can tell. Um, so what I started doing, I mean, and it's it's literally the idiot solution. I started just punching stuff into Google. Uh, I didn't know a better way to do it. Um, I, to a certain extent, I could sort of talk to the people I worked for, but most of them only worked for the company. So, you know, their advice was basically, uh, well, ask around. And I had to figure out how to ask around. And what I actually found, there were a few places that, yeah, I could just punch a name into Google and then find a job application portal. But what I really had to do was find web forums and Slack groups and those are actually out there. You you have to be pretty persistent and you kind of always got to be moving because <laughs> inevitably there's a lot more than you think there will be. And they don't necessarily turn up just with a Google search. But it was that it was that start that sort of got me learning how to look for work. So, yeah, so your advice on networking makes a lot of sense. And that's one of the things that kind of a consistent trend that we've encountered throughout this podcast is a lot of the people that I talk to talk about how they use networking to find jobs. There's a lot of jobs that happen because someone knows someone and someone knows that there's an opening that isn't being very well advertised. Because I think that's one of the problems that we kind of have in this field is that smaller institutions don't always know how to advertise widely to get Mm. a large pool of applicants, they kind of think that, well, you know, if I'll put up a some sort of a, you know, I, w- I need someone to do this and I just put it on my website, somehow the word will spread. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> if, if you do that, it's not going to, it's it's not going to get very far. And so it really does, in some cases, there's been a lot of people that get a lot of success just simply by knowing, knowing people that know other people and 
you know, someone local might pick up that, that that institution A has an opening, but is not advertising it so they can spread, spread the word, something like that. So there is definitely value to um, networking. It is interesting what you say about things like Slack and all that. I haven't really, I have never looked into that as a, as a way to networking. It does make sense. I've, I think maybe part of that is that I, I do you know, I kind of approach this as an academic, like, you know, even though it's, it doesn't always pay off, but I tend to think, you know, um, joining professional organizations that are in my field might be the best way to do it. But then, you know, there's only, there's only one conference every year and it's in Atlanta or somewhere that I can't get to. So I never actually end up talking to people right. in the field there. So I think it, I think you're on to something important there that there's, you need to figure out a way to interact with people in real time without having to go somewhere to a conference or something, because that's, that's when the biggest or the best relationships are going to develop is when you're talking to people in the comfort of their own time, their own, it's, you know, if it's asynchronous and they're comfortable with asynchronous, then it works out better. So uh, that that's an interesting idea. And, and that one hasn't come up before. So um, when you say that you were looking for Slack groups and all of that, and you weren't able to do it through Google, did you were able to find those through previous contacts that you had, or how did you come across those types of things? Again, sort of by accident and really persistent Google searching. Okay. So I was just I punching in the key phrase education writer into Google and sort of seeing what came up. And what I found, and this is another example of me just being stupidly lucky, was an old WordPress site called a writing for the education market. Okay. That's great. Hadn't clearly hadn't been maintained in a while, but I just sort of had this feeling like, okay, maybe this person runs something else or maybe it's moved or something. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the woman in question had a, um, opened up a slat group called writing for the education market. I messaged her. She invited me to join it and I find work opportunities through it. And this is all over the map. So it's historians and people in the sciences and English language. And then, I mean, some really specific technical uh, nursing instruction. Okay, clearly I'm not going to be vetting nursing manuals anytime soon. (laughs) Not useful for me. I'm sure somebody is very happy it's out there, though. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and talking just to a couple members and this is a field I haven't even started to look into yet, but they also, they'll mention, oh, I'm a member of X, you know, professional editing group. You know, they, they do professional copy editing or copywriting. So somewhere out there, those resources exist. I haven't looked at them yet because I haven't needed to, but um, it's, I, I have a feeling that with a couple hours searching and then messaging some people I know, I could probably turn up something. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I think some of it, if you do, if you do have the good fortune to know somebody who is in in the market, in a market you're interested in, asking them, you know, the nuts and bolts questions of how to network, where do you go to find work, where do you look for work opportunities, those are don't don't be afraid to get sort of down down and dirty and technical with it because. On the one hand, it's the hardest piece to solve if you don't know what you're doing. But if you do know somebody who does, they'll generally point you in that direction. And it cuts out a lot of unnecessary stress. Yeah. And that it also is good to reach out to people because, you know, on the one hand, it's really easy to just submit job applications everywhere you can find without actually having to talk to people because you can just submit it and not have to engage with a specific person unless they come back to you wanting an interview and then setting something up. But it does, 
I mean, networking doesn't get very far if you're not proactive with it, if you're not initiating conversations, if you're not reaching out to people to try to initiate those conversations on your own, because it's just not going to, it's not going to happen magically. Uh, and so, I mean, you might get lucky with a job interview or something, but it also really does help to lay the groundwork by reaching out to people and getting to know people and just having people know your name out there. Well, and especially, you know, this is something I've thought a lot about, especially for graduate students, although undergrads, this I think it probably applies to you too. Experience counts for so much. Um, this is, I think, in some ways, the hardest thing for people who try to transition to a career outside of academia is that if you're a typical academic grad student, all you've probably wanted to do or thought most about was something in academia. So you probably don't have a whole lot of job experience, say, in publishing or nonprofits or really interesting places, but also places where those are competitive fields too. You can't just sort of walk in, put your PhD on the table and expect to get a job. You don't have any experience. So they, any employer is always going to look at that with a little bit more, okay, how do I, how do I establish them as a known quantity? Right. right. Um, the, the, uh, this is, I think where um, freelancing has in some ways been the most useful for me is, is it's just put work experience on my resume that isn't necessarily just being a student. Right. And that is actually very useful for me. It's tangible. It's also, I imagine anyway, it's also a bit, I don't know how to put this low. It's, it's lower stakes, I think, to, than it would be to, if you're going to like, you know, write up a, a monograph and submit it for peer review and all of that. Whereas um, freelance type work tends to be a little bit more informal and it tend, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to generalize generalize too much. And you're and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just kind of my perception of it. But it's a little bit more informal, so in some ways, it's a little bit more relaxed. It doesn't have the same pressure, I would imagine, than that producing a monograph might have. But I don't know. I mean, it, 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 does that sound reasonable, or, or is your experience different? No, I would. I'd say that. I'd say that basically is correct. Um, and it's not that the work can't be high pressure. I've been hit with projects where I had to go, okay, I have no idea how to put this thing together. And somehow I have to and give it to somebody because I don't want to look unprofessional and blow a deadline or something. Where it seems easiest to me is that nothing extends into these multi-month or year-long sort of struggles. If you sit down to write a monograph, that's a lot of work. Even if you're adapting from a dissertation, you're looking at a, at a really long-term thing. Whereas, yeah. you know, right now I'm, I'm writing some Spanish uh, cultural lesson plans for this company. I found them on LinkedIn. I sent in my application. They gave me one batch to write. I turned them around, did some revisions. The revisions took a few hours. It was not especially intensive. All of this happened within the span of maybe a couple of weeks, and then they've sent me more work subsequently. Again, in one week they send me the work, and the next week I send it back to them. It things happen quickly, and that's actually sort of gratifying if you're an academic who, you know, if you apply to say a, a job as an assistant professor somewhere, you send in an application, and if you hear back, it could still be weeks, weeks and weeks before you hear anything. And then if you don't hear back, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm still getting rejection letters. The stuff I applied to, and I think the fall of 2017. 
Yeah, I um, was getting them. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> in some cases a year or two afterwards. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, like yeah. So that is actually I I find just immensely gratifying. Just the immediacy of okay, I send it in, it comes back to me, I work on it some more, and then it's done. You know, short term tasks are I think actually very good for one's mental health um, rather than just waiting on something and wondering if it's going to come through or sending a manuscript off and then two months later you hear back and then you have to revise and then you send it back and you know, it takes a long time. Yeah. I think that's, I, th I think that's kind of where I was trying to go with that, but that makes, I think that frames it much better than what I was saying. But yeah, the idea that it's a small scale project, whereas like you said, a monograph is going to be a years long thing and it's a years long thing where you're going to become so intimately immersed in the material this is for, I mean, for people that write monographs, the monograph is, you know, in many ways, it's your, it's your baby. I know it's kind of a cliche, mm -hmm. but it's something that you have invested years of your life in. And so now you have to go through the review process and people are going to tear your baby apart. <laughs> and it's, uh. um, and so it feels like it's a much bigger investment uh, than something like this, where basically, because I imagine that when you're doing like entries for, uh, you, you know, encyclopedia type entries or something. You're talking what three or four pages of text, and in a in a in a in a, in a class lesson, you're talking. It's a much smaller scale project, and so I can mm -hmm. imagine it, it probably feels a bit um, not easier. I don't want to. I don't want to say it's easier, but it's a bit lower lower stakes in some ways, or at least maybe less emotional involvement yeah. or something like that that makes it a little bit um faster and also it's stuff that you can very quickly build up a body of work that way whereas if you're putting all your effort into a monograph it's going to be years before you have anything that's actually tangible that you can show people that you know what you're doing oh well i mean you're absolutely right about that too yeah, at the end of the day if if somebody comes back to me and tells me oh this this thing that you've written it, it totally doesn't work we need a complete rewrite I'll be irritated if I have to do the work again, especially right. if it wasn't clearly communicated to me what I needed to do. That I'll be mad, but I I never feel emotionally attached to my work. You know, how how dare you tell me that these AP government questions don't meet the standards? What are you possibly <laughs> talking about? Right. I've never had that reaction. So it's kind of it's actually very liberating to not be wholly invested body and soul into everything that I do. Just some things are just work. Mm -hmm. And if it gets done easily, that's great. And if not, that's a little more frustrating. But, uh, you know, I just leave it behind at the end of the day. Right. It's something that you can you can you can walk away from. It's it's more like a, a regular job where you, you know, you put in your time, you put in your your few hours of, of writing, you put in your few hours of time, whatever, putting it together, doing some revising and all that. And then and then, yeah, you can kind of walk away. Whereas if you're doing a monograph, you you finish it, and even when you get it published and all of that, you still can't really walk away from it because that's still going to be kind of dictating your possibly anyway dictating your future research for the next monograph, and so it might lead you into the next whatever it is five years of grind of putting together the next monograph or something. So it it I'm sure like you said, liberating I think is probably the, a good way to phrase it is that you do get to just walk away at the end of the day and go do something else. And then you'll know that the next assignment will be there for you, you know, the next day or the next week or whatever the timeline is on those. 
And it does have its attendant stresses, too. I mean, it's freelance, so project ends. It's not necessarily like people will be like, okay, well, we've got something else coming up in three weeks. Sit tight. We'll get you more work. Yeah. I've gone a couple months without hearing anything. That starts to get stressful um, if if you're actually sort of looking forward to or depending on the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, having that, uh, that's an uncomfortable position to be in. Yeah. Nevertheless, it still seems easier to be in some ways than academia. Um, you know, which is also <laughs> contingent. I don't know a, right. a gentler word for it. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a, there's there's a lot of parallels between um, you know freelancing and adjunct instructing at a university or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, the the adjuncts are basically the freelancers of the academic world who have who get by on you know piecework where uh, you know the 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 freelance writer, you'll get, like you said, kind of a short-term contract to write up a specific thing in a, in a certain amount of time. Adjunct instructors have the same type of thing where you get one class for this one term, do your thing. And then once it's done, maybe we'll have something else for you, but we don't know. And so there's a lot of connection there. There is. Um, and the only, and this is crass, but life is crass in some ways. The difference <laughs> that I found was that what they paid me to be a freelancer shocked me when I was first starting out. Like I just couldn't conceive that somebody would pay me more than $15 an hour to do something. I'd, I'd, I'd gotten so used to devaluing my own labor. Yeah. Um, and, and, and project rates vary tremendously, but if I'm on a good project, I, I make more than 60 an hour and wow. that's contingent. It ends. And then I have to move on to something else. And then I might be on a job that pays me only 30 an hour, mm-hmm. maybe even a little bit less. Nevertheless, Comparison, compared to adjuncting, I actually feel sort of compensated for my labor and as though <laughs> the degree that I have is, is sort of valuable in a way. So <laughs> well, That's you an know, interesting concept. I know. It, it, the first three months, I was kind of in identity crisis over it. I won't lie because I just couldn't I, – I was so used to like, okay – I, I live sort of monkishly, and I, you know, I, I'm just used to sort of making kind of what I did as an undergraduate, frankly. And then one day, that just wasn't true anymore. The other thing, and this is useful, I think, not just for people with a PhD. My PhD is an is an asset. I think people like it when I have it on a job. It, it you know, they they know that I, that I have a great deal of content expertise, and I'm, it it says good things. But a lot of the people I work with, they just have MAs. There are probably a few people who only have BAs. Now, I never tried to navigate this universe from the position of not having a PhD. So I don't know exactly what it looks like, except that there are a lot of people who do it. So it is this opportunity that's out there if you're sort of willing to put yourself into it and then admittedly have to figure out, okay, how do I find work? Where do I go to? Who do I talk to? Which is... It's time consuming. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. And I'm sure the experience probably is different for MA versus PhD. But at the same time, they are obviously hiring MAs and 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 some people mm-hmm. BAs. And so it, it obviously must there there it works. <laughs> I guess is kind of the the short thing to to or the the short answer for that. And so so just mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about the kind of the logistics of being a freelance writer. So I'm guessing like with with freelance, there's there's you you get paid uh, per project. Each each project will lay out your you know the per hour salary and all of that, or or whether it's just like a lump sum or whatever the case may be. But I imagine that there probably does not include things like benefits, health insurance, that kind of thing. So you're you're you would be on your taking care of that yourself then, right? 
Bingo. Up until now, I've been I've been on OSU's health insurance, which is very good, mm-hmm. and I have greatly enjoyed it while I've been there. But now that I've graduated, I must say goodbye to it in a couple months, so I'll be going on my wife's insurance. Yeah. Okay. If I were single, I'd have to go learn how to find insurance, which unfortunately not a skill that I was given. So right. I guess that would be kind of intimidating. Right. The uh, Affordable Care Act route and all that. I think I'd have to. I mean, ultimately, that's how my wife got her insurance. I'd have to learn how to navigate the marketplace. And yeah, I mean, there are there are those attendant complications. There's also taxes. You don't think about it until you get into it. I had the good fortune of having my father as an accountant. So good. up front, I sort of knew like, okay, we're going to have to figure out it. at what point when I make enough money, do I have to become an LLC, become an S-Corp, which eventually I did get to that point. And the thing about that, you know, you, j- you just sort of have to plan, okay, I'm going to lose X amount of money in taxes. And if I don't set it up the right way, you'll you'll lose a lot of money just being a 1099, for example. This is really boring technical tax info, well, but it matters yeah, when it might, well, you suddenly have to get money back. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> something that people do need to think about. I mean, it's a, when I was an adjunct, when I, did, when I was a full-time adjunct, full-time as in you know, I would teach one class here, one class there. So it's full time for me, but not full time with any employer. So I was kind of on the contingent mm-hmm. thing too. And so this, I, I never had to move beyond. I think all of my employers were just just did normal W twos and W fours and all that. I don't think I actually had to do any ten ninety nines. But I imagine freelancing has a different set of rules. And so, I, mm-hmm. sure, tax stuff might, you know, all of our eyes might glaze over. But I think this is important information for. Um, people to know when they're first getting into it or else they could uh, run into a whole lot of trouble come tax time. Yeah. Um, it, because suddenly, you know, this was not my experience, but I could have easily imagined it. Suddenly I've got all this money and right. it's really nice having <laughs> this money. So maybe I upgrade my standard of living, which is, you know, look forward to for a very long time. But if, if you're not actively going, okay, I know I need to hold a set amount back to pay taxes when that inevitably comes, you might be very upset to discover that you owe X amount of money to the government, which you just you you want to think those things through. So anybody who's thinking about going this route, talk to an accountant. It'll make your life so much easier on the back end if you do a little bit of work on the front end. Right. Okay. So so that's kind of the the setup as life as as a freelancer. Um, you talked a bit about how you got into the position, which is cool. So in kind of the day to day operations of it, do so now that you've kind of integrated yourself into this this universe to a certain extent um it's just a matter of did they just send you a contract with a general outline of what they want the the final work to be or what type of instruction do you receive how much i mean i I know you you you'll hear back at the end of when you're when you've submitted something to them for feedback and you might have to do revisions and all of that but what does it look like when you start the project i mean it it so depends on the employer um more often than not, at least in education writing, people have really established guidelines for what they want, which is good. It takes so much pressure off of you. Nevertheless, there are a few things. One, um, people will throw a lot of terminology at you that at least if you're me, you've never really heard before. <laughs> so lately, I've been working on science textbook proofreads. And the good thing about that is you don't, if you're proofreading, you don't really know anything about science because my grasp of science is basically limited to gravity makes things fall. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's really unsophisticated, but there's publishing terminology, you know, recto and verso refers to different, you know, the left or right page, or 
annotext is something that appears sort of, it would be, if you have blank lines on a page, the annotext would be what would be filled in, like say a correct answer to a question to a student. Okay. So this, and a good freelancer, you try to be as versatile as possible. So you, you don't just do one thing. So the more you branch out, the more you sort of run up against that terminology where you go, oh, I don't actually know what this is. This is te very technical. So you have to spend some time educating yourself on it. The other thing I would say, at any given moment, I end up reading the instructions a few different times, demanding samples because I need to be able to visualize what they actually want very often. I'm just one of those people who I sort of have to do something to get a really good sense of how it needs to come together. This is why I generally don't assemble furniture, because I leave a, a mess of broken tables behind me. <laughs> and then the other thing, you have to be really communicative, because inevitably there will be questions um, that aren't even covered in the most comprehensive of guidelines. That, again, that's something I've been encountering with the proofreads I'm doing right now, is just funky little formatting things that... They're really small, except that once you've done it for a while, you start to notice and then you have to figure out, OK, how do I standardize this? Where should this text be bolded consistently throughout this textbook or not? It, it, it takes a certain amount of being willing to adapt to continually changing circumstances, but also being very willing to just ask questions, even at the risk of looking a little dumb sometimes or a little naive, let's say. Yeah, that hadn't really even occurred to me that you would be doing stuff that's not history. I mean, it, it obviously, it, thinking about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, a freelance, uh, you're going to be, you're not really going to get to dictate the, the necessarily the subject matter. I mean, you can certainly tell them what your subject matter expertise is, but it, uh, but yeah, I guess that would require a lot of flexibility on on the part of the freelancer is to be willing to tackle other fields that you did not get a PhD in. And so that would be an interesting dynamic to the whole process. Yeah, I took a, a short project on last year that was adapting an, entrep uh, an entrepreneurship textbook for a juvenile audience. Now, all it was was adaptation. I just needed to take this text for somebody who was supposed to be a high school graduate and develop it for a middle school graduate. Yet I've never done anything with entrepreneurship. I don't right. know thing about business studies. So you, you sort of have to be willing to be a little uncomfortable in the moment. And it's been a while since you've read anything that was written at a junior high school level. This is honestly the single most difficult thing for me at any given moment is always making sure, okay, is this something that a typical seventh grader could actually read and understand? Because you know, I was trained to write for college students, mostly. And other PhDs. Oh, yeah, well, there's that. That that jargon, you know, stepping away from the jargon of my dissertation was sort of easy. Stepping it and then bringing it down to high schoolers, that was doable. Getting it to where I could write for middle schoolers, that's actually been the toughest for me. It's I, I always have to double check myself and just realize this is a 20 word one or this is a 21 word sentence. And really, this should be more like 15 just parse my language as much as possible. I can imagine. Yeah, that would be a huge challenge. I mean, it's, I imagine <laughs> at some point you just want to go find a seventh grader on the street and just say, Hey, can you read this? Does it make sense to you? <laughs> I, I need like my own in-house QAT right. <laughs> a seventh grader who will just read my stuff and be like, okay, does this make sense? Okay, good. Uh -huh. Here, have, have $5. <laughs> you can write up the weirdest Craigslist ad ever. Yeah. I got these younger cousins that I need to like hire. They're like 13, 14, 15. They're actually yeah. probably the perfect QA team for me. I need to 
get in good with them. Right. You know, hook them up with Nintendo games or something and just keep them, keep them going <laughs> in the back room and just say, hey, okay, I got, I got a question for you. Does this make sense? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's an idea. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I've got a nine-year-old that sits here and plays video games all day and he doesn't want to help with anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. That is... And this is meant to be funny, but that's actually one of the other challenges of the freelance thing is that you have to be you have to evolve a certain discipline about doing it because Mm. it's freelance. I'm at home. I can go out. I frequently do work in a coffee shop because I think that's good for my mental health to be out of the apartment, not just in one place all the time, either working or surrounded by my video games, which is can be a very dangerous combination. (laughs) Right. But everybody has to find their own rhythm with that. I, I think there probably are some people who are just sort of so Spartan and ascetic. They can just dive right into work at any given moment. I'm better about that, but I'm not sure I'm exactly one of those people. So finding that discipline is something you do have to do. It is hard. I work from home also. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, you know how it is. yeah, I'm in Ohio, but I work for a university in New Hampshire. And so everything is remote. And so all of my meetings are online and everything. I go up there a couple times a year, but the rest of the year, yeah, I'm working from home and yeah, it, it can be really difficult, especially like right now I've got people doing remodeling upstairs. So I keep hearing hammering and all of that. And so I have to work <laughs> through that or find somewhere else to go um, that I can still do conferences without making people look at me. Mm, and that's a, it can be actually a, a tricky balance. You don't necessarily anticipate that when you decide I'm going to be a freelancer, but there's, Worth thinking ahead of time, what's your best working environment? And how do you cultivate that, either in your own home or elsewhere? Yeah, it, so you have to make decisions about that. You also need to make decisions, I imagine, you know, what time of day do I work best? Because you, you have a little bit of flexibility hmm. where you can say, okay, I'm a night owl. And so I can do my best work at four in the morning or something. I don't know. Some people can, I guess. but Or other people might get their best work done at 7 a.m. So it's So there's a little bit of flexibility there. It's just, so it really does require you to know yourself because you're not always, you know, you might have editorial meetings or something, I don't know, but you'll, you're really going to be in charge of your, your own behavior, your own um, work ethic and your own work habits and all of that. And that is something that will probably take some trial and error as you go along. It is. And then also setting good limits for yourself, Um, especially as a grad student. And you must remember this. I I worked at all hours of the day. You know, if, 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 if I felt like I had to work, I would start working when I woke up. And if I felt like I had to work and it was late at night, I'd work until either I literally could not go anymore or my then girlfriend, now wife, finally said, "Okay, we need to go to bed. We were both night owls then. So my working hours were anywhere between 7 a.m. and 2 a.m. That's not really a great routine long term. It's not good for you. And you set up poor boundaries. You can also, especially as a freelancer, end up taking on too much work, which it's easy to fall into when you have a sort of feast or famine cycle. You want to say yes to everything because there's not certainty that that offer is going to be there in a month. So you know, better to make hay while the sun is shining unless you wind up doing 17 hours of work a day, in which case it's not good for you. It's very bad for you. So you sort of have to develop a certain amount of discipline about saying no even to something that might be a good opportunity. Just learn to walk away from it. That's something I struggle with anyway. Yeah, that's another parallel with the adjunct instructing world too. Mm. Is that, yeah, you're you're terrified to say no to anything 
because you need money and you need work. And yeah. so you're terrified. So you're terrified of burning a bridge with a potential long-term opportunity if you say no to an assignment. And so it's very easy to fall into the trap you've just described where, well, like I mentioned it in off mic a little while ago, I was, I was teaching at my peak nine classes on five different campuses. <laughs> and that was because I was terrified to say no. It made me absolutely miserable because I was, like you said, working pretty much every waking moment. I was working on lectures or grading or whatever, or driving or whatever the, whatever right. the activity of the moment was. But yeah, I was, it was just a full-time, more than a full-time, that's probably more like, you know, one and a half or two full-time jobs, really, even though I was getting paid for less than the equivalent of one full-time job, but whatever. Um, but yeah, that's a problem that is, that is kind of endemic to this type of employment structure is, yeah, the, the desire or the fear of losing out on other opportunities by saying no. But at the same time, like you said, you have to form a balance. Otherwise, you can't spend all of your waking hours doing a work-related thing or you're just going to lose every, you're going to lose your life. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's a very right. difficult balance. It's also not great for your productivity for what it's worth. Yeah, you know, I ran across this a lot in grad school and I fell into it sometimes. Uh, the, the trap of the person who's like, I work 18 hours a day. And the, the trap of that is that after about two weeks of that routine, your productivity is not great. You have, if, if you work 18 hours a day, maybe six of those are actual good work. And then a lot of it is just sort of, you know, you write a sentence every 10 minutes. Because your brain is just so addled, you can't really keep up with it anymore. And it, it pays right. to set those limits and then work really efficiently for eight hours rather than very badly for fourteen. And the freelancing, you have to you have to find those as a grad student. You have to find those certainly as an adjunct. You well, adjuncting is its own beast. It's 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 tricky. There was particularly pronounced during my grad school years too. I mean, I kind of had a similar situation with you where eventually my wife just got tired of it. And she's like, look, <laughs> you gotta be, you have to put this stuff aside because yeah, mm -hmm. I'm spending all of my time. I have to work on the dissertation. I have to work up a lecture for tomorrow's class. I got to work on great. I got to do all this stuff. And um, yeah, look, I am grateful to her for bringing me back to earth by telling me that, dude, you got to stop this. You're driving, you're killing yourself doing this. And it is something that's easy to do when you're in a situation like this. So you, you, that's kind of another form of networking, I suppose, is that you have to also have a network of people outside of your field that can help to keep you grounded or keep mm -hmm. you in the real world also, because it would it is really easy to disappear into the work that you're doing. The, that that's a very important point. I completely agree, and that that kind of network is was especially for me really good at getting me to sometimes realize the things I did was absurd. I mean, even you know, it, I, I realized when I talked to people who weren't in academia about the academic job market and how competitive it is, other people reacted to this as though this was a really absurd thing to want to do with your life. Why would you put yourself through the ringer? And of course. I was passionate about it, loved it, but it was sort of healthy to remember, okay, how much of this is really worth burning my, down the rest of my life in order to maybe make this work? Just remembering those, having that conversation, preferably with somebody else or even seeing them and in your own head, it grounds you in a very good way. So I would encourage, really, this is just good advice. Just make friends with people who don't do what you do. You become more self-critical and self-aware just sort of reflexively because of it. 
I was admittedly not good during grad school. Like I said, I kind of put myself all in and I did let friend, you know, friendships with people outside of academia, I did let that wither. And I regretted that a lot as time went on because yeah, you need to have, you need to have a conversation with people about, you know, just something that is completely unrelated to your work. And, and so for a long time, I only, the only people I hung out with were other grad students. And so every conversation we had would devolve into a discussion of historiography and this, the, the, the stuff that you have to get away from, or it's just going to, it's just going to kill your brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially, you know, the competitive stuff, grant applications. And yeah. even if you're with people who aren't competitive, they're perfectly nice. Just, it, it, it's probably not great for, if you're a type A person to constantly be comparing yourself to other people because you'll go off a cliff eventually. It was a, a hard-fought lesson on my part, unfortunately. And it's also a good recipe for the uh, imposter syndrome that people have been talking about lately. Yes, you all, and that I think that exists in in fields outside of academia too. But mm-hmm. academics are very good at talking themselves into it. Right. Something to be aware of. Yeah. It's really easy to convince yourself that you're incompetent when you see other people give, you know, selling, you know, publishing their books and, and giving lectures that everybody loves. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of, well, I'm not doing that. And people don't love me as much as that person. So therefore I just suck. (laughs) Oh, this is all too familiar. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's starting to get hit a little too close to home here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that it sounds like it's an interesting career. And so you've found something that is paying your bills and it's something that you're interested in. So I think that's kind of like, you know, that's, that's what we, you know, what more can we ask for? Um, so, but what, what do you think is going to come next for you going forward? That's a good question. And there, I wish I had any answers. Um, as long as I, for all the time I put into thinking about an alternative career, it's, it's still a, Leaving academia without a whole lot of experience, you have so many options, it's almost kind of dizzying. So on any given day, nonprofit work sounds interesting. And if publishing wasn't so competitive, I'd probably want to go in that direction. But publishing is very competitive, so it's, that's got its own difficulties. And then there's government work. And then there's public history. And lately, I've been really interested in some opportunities I see that come out of the UN, which actually employs a sizable number of freelancers bigger my imagination when I saw that. If I could pick any given thing, honestly, um, consulting in industry or for the government, it, it, I, I find to be the most interesting because it's it's the same sort of analytical skills that are drilled into you as a consequence of doing a PhD. But similar to some of the freelancing stuff I do, the work ends eventually. You do it and you move on to the next thing. You don't spend six years looking at the same monograph Preparing it for publication, doing the research, it's its a little less intensive that way. And then the luxury is, because of my freelance income, um, I can sort of, I have the luxury of being able to sit here to a certain extent and try to figure it out, not just take the first job that somebody offers me that I managed to talk my way into. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing for people to kind of keep in mind is that it's good to... Even if you find yourself doing something that you know may not be what you ultimately want to do over time, if it's enjoyable enough to you to keep you interested and it pays the bills while you're looking for something else, then don't toss that aside. You know, keep that. Even if it, you know, so if you're adjuncting but you're looking for something else, it's perfectly fine to kind of keep with that that type of job. You don't want to just because I, I think one of the things that a lot of students do is when they graduate, 
they have this idea that, oh, I'm, I'm holding out for a, you know, a government job or a tenure job or something like that. When the reality is that of almost everybody that I've talked to on this podcast, and at this point, it's 60 or 70 different people at this point. I don't think anybody has actually gotten the job that they thought they were going to get after graduation. It's something where everybody ends up finding something that may, that didn't wasn't even on the horizon for them when they first graduated, but they turned out to love it or at least like it enough to stick with it for 30 years. And mm -hmm. so it's it's and it's it's kind of hard to tell people that, you know, because when you graduate, it's like, okay, I, I have this specific, these, this specific degree, which, it, you know, from conventional wisdom leads me to think that I should be getting this specific job. And it's, it's hard to kind of tell people that, well, you know, the job market is weird <laughs> and you're going to, you're probably going to end up doing something that you aren't even thinking about right now. And so you need to kind of be open to anything that comes your way, even mm -hmm. if it doesn't seem like this isn't maybe this isn't what you thought you were going to be doing when you graduated for the last five years that you've been doing this degree, but it's it's a job and it, and it a job is what you make of it and all of that to use whatever cliche you want to use, but um, it's it, it and so it's it's just, it's a hard trend to describe to people, but it seems to be kind of the reality is that very few people get the job they think they're going to get, and so you need to be open to whatever comes your way because you never know what what's going to come your way. Exactly. And then it, for me, this is something that I've, I've, ta I've talked about a little bit elsewhere is just figuring out, I, uh, I never did this because all I wanted to do was study history. So I never actually sat down and thought about, okay, what is it that makes me want to do this beyond my love of the subject? And, and really, for me, it was about, okay, I like teaching and I like being able to research and analyze, think about deep questions and to write. And when I thought about it in those terms, there were more things that I could actually do apart from just be a professor. It sort of opened my mind up to at least, okay, I could do this and be happy. Um, even if it's not what I've always had my heart set on, does that really even matter anymore? So just asking that very basic question, you know, what is it about this that I enjoy doing? It's, it's important to do, and it will actually open things up for you, I think, in a good way. It makes you more aware of those opportunities where you go, oh, well, I could do that, and I think I could even be happy doing that. Yeah, and that's, impo that's important uh, for just a career perspective. It's also important for you to do – because that's also going to help you focus your – you know, when you're applying for jobs, it'll help you to focus your, you know, your, your application letters. It'll help you to focus your interactions with other people because if you've got a, a – a, clearer sense of what you want out of life to, to, to kind of put it very broadly, it's going to make things easier for you than if you were to approach people and say, well, I don't know what I want to do. I went, I went to school, I got a history degree, but you know, I like history, but I don't really know what I want to do with it. And so mm -hmm. it really does require a lot of self-reflection and a lot of kind of thinking about what you like, what, what do you like, what don't you like, and then keep an eye out for positions that meet that those types of things I mean, you were talking before, before we started recording about opportunities that seem to come out of nowhere, like corporations looking for historians um, to, to for corporate history or for strategic planning for the corporation. Um, there are jobs like that out there that don't always immediately, you know, people don't automatically think of that when they graduate from, from a program. A lot of them think, oh, I'm going to have to go into university work or museum work. But there are a lot of corporate positions out there. There are a lot of military units that have unit specific historians that are 
much more focused mm-hmm. than academic historians. And so it's a, it, it, there are a lot of opportunities out there, but it, it's, it's just a matter of kind of getting yourself in the right mindset to look for those jobs and then also to kind of figure out what, what exactly do you like about history or whatever field you're going to college for, and then kind of crafting your job search to reflect your strengths and the things that you like the best. And that's, it's hard to do. I won't, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I think it's something that, that, that history majors and really anybody from any degree program really needs to kind of figure out for themselves. Exactly. And then once you actually do that, you can push back on this narrative that history only prepares you to become a historian at a university in a tenure track position. There are actually all these other exciting things that you can do with it. You just sort of have to be open enough to looking for them. Um, I'm actually continually struck by the number of people in, in the private sector who are open to working with historians, their attitude almost at times seems to be, we just wish they were open to working with us. We, we don't want them to just run back to a university the moment they have an opportunity. They actually, we're going to stick around. We'd be interested in working with them. We have no objection to it. So cultivating that attitude is a, is a good thing on your job hunt. Yeah. Cause I mean, historians, um, history itself is actually a very popular topic. I mean, a lot of people are interested in history. People that aren't mm-hmm. professional historians, just, you know, people like reading about whatever it is, Civil War, World War II. It might be something generic like that, but people are interested in history. And so a lot of people actually, their ears kind of perk up when they hear that you're a historian because, you know, they might pigeonhole you and try to start asking questions about, you know, the Battle of Bunker Hill or something. But there's also kind of a sense that, you know, historians, they're trained to think broadly. They're trained to analyze sources. They're trained to do some stuff that's actually pretty cool. And so there is, I I can totally see that there are a lot of people that would love to work with historians because, you know, we we bring different perspectives and we're able to synthesize information in ways that other people aren't trained to do. I don't want to say that historians have some innate skill that's better than anybody else, but we have, we receive training in that type of stuff. And so I think there is a lot of interest in working with historians. It's just, I, th- I think a lot of the hang up more is on our side as historians that there's kind of a a bias in academia against working for corporate positions um, because, you know, academics tend to think that, oh, we, we, you know, we're pure academics. We're not tainted by corporate money and all of that. But we, <laughs> those of us that have been in this for a while know that that's a joke <laughs> because cor- universities yeah. are swayed by corporate donations and all that all the, all the time. So it's kind of a ridiculous standard or a ridiculous perception that historians have about the purity of their work and all of that, um, which I think is another thing that really needs to get dispelled over time is that, you know, going to work for a corporation as a historian isn't better or worse than working as a historian in a museum. I mean, the historian probably isn't the one doing any kind of polluting or anything that the corporation might be doing, but um, there there are opportunities and they're good opportunities for people to work outside of, of nonprofits and, and universities and museums and all that. It's just a matter of finding those job listings. And I would say too, and this is a conversation I've had with faculty members at OSU who are actually really supportive of this idea. If we want to demonstrate the importance and the relevance of the humanities, that we actually need to go out and engage with the world. And that that can be public history, but that can also just be going out and sort of existing (laughs) and not pretending that there's this 
cloistered existence that we're all going to go back to where we're all we're only around historians and we only really interact with historians or students Eh, no we need to go out in the world and participate um that that's a good way to demonstrate how relevant the humanities are to my mind yeah i agree and that's it's it's difficult for traditional academics to do that because that's not what they were trained to do but i'm hoping that kind of our generation and generations to come who are kind of by not not even by choice but are kind of required to do not go into traditional tenured academia that we will change that perception just simply because we have to because we, if we want to you know eat we're going to have to get jobs outside of academia and i think that will allow for more opportunities for historians trained historians to interact with the general public which can foster better relations both ways i think mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. In that in that respect, I don't want to say the jobs crisis is a good thing, but for better and for worse, it will force a reevaluation yes, of attitudes. For better or for worse. <laughs> and that's probably a good way to <laughs> good place to uh, wrap this up. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean we've been talking for about Excellent. an hour now. So are there any last thoughts that you've been having on any of this on any of this stuff we've been talking about that we haven't got to yet? Serendipity has been the author a lot of, of the good fortune that I have had, but I will say being open to those opportunities if they come your way. I mean, I was taught to say yes to stuff if it came my way and it looked like I could do it. And that's an attitude that has actually served me pretty well on balance. So you're out there and you're listening to this and some funky opportunity crosses your threshold that you've never really thought about doing before. Don't say no to it just because you think that, okay, I've never done this. I can't do it. You'd be surprised, actually, at the kind of weird improvisation you can pull off if you're open to trying for it. You can be more flexible than you think. <laughs> you can learn how to proofread a science textbook. Actually, it's, you know, the, when I started freelancing, I would have said no to something like that because I would have said, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know how to do it. I haven't been trained to do that. And then, actually, as it turns out, you can learn to do it fairly effectively but you have to be willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit you know embrace that discomfort and in a very indirect way you actually were trained for it because again you're good at analyzing sources even if it's not a historical source you're good at analyzing sources in general you're good at looking for the important stuff from the sources and all of that so it is there are ways to apply your training if they're if even if you're not applying it to the stuff that you thought you'd be applying it to Right. Don't mistake content knowledge for skill set. The two are not necessarily the same thing. Right. I'm a pretty good copy editor, as it turns out, because generally I can put together a sentence. So when something reads just sort of oddly, it jumps out at me very quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had that skill set, at least as cultivated in the same way as it was if I hadn't gone into history. Right. Okay. Well, this is uh, great. So uh, thank you for joining me today, Zeb. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, shoot me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Zeb Larson, I am Rob Denning. Have a good day.